0: How will ai shape society and how will society shape ai i'm katrina ingram host of the ai for society dialogues a podcast that explores the work of researchers from the university of alberta a global leader in artificial intelligence research chess checkers poker as constructed environments with clear parameters Games are an ideal proving ground for artificial intelligence research. I am Eleni Strulia, a professor of computer science and director of AI for Society, a signature area at the University of Alberta. Today's guest, Dr. Michael Bowling, is a professor of computer science who is equally passionate about games and artificial intelligence. His AI programs have won two World Series of Poker Championships. He is our host, Katrina Ingram, with Dr. Michael Bowling. Dr. Bowling, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, before we launch into talking about your work as an AI researcher, I want to talk to you about your love of games. Now, first to point out the obvious, your last name is Boeing, so I have to guess that there may be some deep family history here around the love of games, Um, but you've also shared that you have this collection of hundreds of board games that you've amassed, and I want to know a little bit about this collection. What's the coolest, rarest, or most bizarre game that you own?
1: Uh, it is true that I have a pretty uh, hefty collection of board games. It, I, I mean, I guess it started with my family. My, my family did play games throughout my childhood. I probably took it uh, you know a step further than, than they had taken it. in that uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, what I do in research revolves around games uh, as my job and what a lot of do what I do during playtime revolves around games. Uh, What's cool in my collection? It's pretty varied. I actually have like a Go board and Go pieces that I bought from when 20 years ago from when I was in Japan, uh, all the way to uh, uh, a World War II simulation game that involves thousands and thousands of small little cardboard counters. But the majority of the games I play tend to be, you know, more family oriented, fast paced games. They can be party games like Codenames. Some of the games that uh, my gaming group has gotten really deep into tend to be cooperative games, oddly enough, where we're all sort of playing together. I think that ends up telling a, a nice story for us as a group that we, we beat this challenge together and they're games like, um, you know, Space Alert or uh, Pandemic Legacy, which is maybe oddly uh, <laughs> apropos right now or, or not something we should talk about. But those games get a lot of play in my group.
0: That sounds fantastic. I wanted to share that I have a vintage Mork and Mindy board game circa 1979. Very uh, nice. Yeah.
1: I I tend to not collect games. I tend to play them. But there was one game that I've started to collect, I guess I should say, which is um, their variations on the game Careers. I don't know if you know the game Careers. I do. But they've they've been made since uh, I think the first one came out in the 40s. And you sort of get to like play through doing different jobs and going to college and university and stuff. But every time they reprint it, of course, the careers you can go into change. So like in the 1940s, it was very different than in the 1970s and the 1980s. And so you can see the evolution of culture uh, in that game, which is kind of cool.
0: That sounds amazing. Now, I want to know, how did you turn this love of games into a career as an AI researcher? I think it was mostly by accident.
1: Um, There is another, of course, another uh, piece that I really enjoy is to think about how we think um that's what really got me into ai was this sort of real excitement to think about how we approach new problems and how we think about them and in a sort of formal way in that we could get maybe a computer to do the same thing and i think it's so easy to see that in how we play games how we can approach something new that someone would first explain us the boundary of the game here's here's how the rules work here's the space that you need to work in here's your goal that you're trying to achieve and then you know often we're humans are, in fact, very good at, especially compared to our AI systems, at right away from just the rules, actually being able to, you know, sort of set out and achieve goals and make some progress. Of course, you know, we can spend more time learning the game and learning its intricacies and getting better at it. But that sort of first encounter always fascinated me. And, and that's really what moved me to think about this is a great test bed to think about what our computers can do.
0: Yeah. Well, in addition to your academic credentials, you've also worked in industry quite a bit. And you mentioned Japan already, and I know you worked in Japan and you've done some work with Yahoo. How does working in industry as a researcher differ than working in academia? And what's one of the more interesting problems that you've worked on during your time in industry?
1: That's that's an interesting question, because I think my experience in industry has been very different than than many others. I have a tendency to, when looking at even an applied problem, break it down into sort of its fundamental, what at its core is the essence of that problem. And then I attempt to tackle that. So even in much of my industrial collaborations that I've worked on, it usually boils down the problem. And then if I can find how it turns into a game, I'll usually explore it that way. Um, I think if I, if I were to pick the single most interesting applied problem that I've looked at, it's actually a little bit slightly more recent work where we've been looking at how to make decisions when uh, you're, you're not certain what your data is telling you. Uh, and you need to be robust, as we like to call it. You need to be robust to some errors in what that data might be telling you. Uh, and so we had a particular application in mind in an industrial setting uh, for doing this. But uh, in the end, I, I've, I've sort of turned this into, and we'll talk a little bit more about game theory, I'm sure. Uh, I've turned this into sort of a game theoretic description, which it turns out the exact same algorithms we use in poker, oddly enough, can apply to this problem. And so one of the reasons I liked it, because it's a good example of how you can look at a thorny applied problem and break it down into something that, uh, you know, maybe looks, maybe looks simpler, but uh, has all the same interesting features of the original problem.
0: Yeah, I love that you're saying you're trying to find the game and the problem, and (laughs) that we're definitely going to talk about poker quite a bit. But before we get there, I want to ask about your early work in robotics. So it was the late 90s and early 2000s, and you were part of various robot soccer teams, and you even won some world championships. And I have to say that I am not at all familiar with this whole world of robot soccer. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure, I think right when I started grad school, so being uh, you know a naive young learner, first discovering what artificial intelligence could be, was really when a couple of senior researchers, Hiroki Katano and my uh, who would be my uh, PhD supervisor Manuel Veloso and others, started this. Uh, let's create a challenge problem that could really drive all sorts of aspects of robotics and artificial intelligence forward. And and the problem they picked was what what would it take to you know have a, a robot soccer team that could beat. The, the human World Cup champions. And of course, they needed to set a deadline to do this, and they have set it as 2050. So we are, in fact, since that moment, we're over halfway there uh, in terms of time has gone by. Uh, I think we made amazing progress. If you actually go to robocup.org, uh, you can find uh, various videos of, of competitions that have been run. I haven't been involved in over a decade. That was an early... When I was a graduate student, this looked like, especially in the early days, it felt like... I didn't have to know a lot about AI, I just needed to be a good programmer, which I had that coming out of undergrad. And so here's a place that I could start to you know, sort of cut my teeth on these kinds of problems. So it was a great way to get started. And uh, we started with simulation environments, but then I was working with a team and led a team that had built some small toaster-sized robots that kicked around a golf ball. Yeah, and we scored goals and we passed the ball and it was it was exciting.
0: That's very cool. Well, I'm wondering about um, this idea of embodied AI. So robots versus uh, disembodied AI, and is there anything to be gained from having a physical body when you think about AI learning? And if so, what exactly?
1: An embodiment is an interesting question, and I think there's there's sort of two levels you might think about it. And one I'm a big proponent of, I think we need, if we, if we want to try to understand intelligence, I think intelligence needs to sit inside of a world where it's interacting, that it needs to be able to take action and have an effect on that world. Uh, If it's just say making predictions, I think it, it can never really understand in the same way that we understand. And I think it's important to have action and take effect and have some goals to achieve in the world. And that's a form of embodiment, but I don't think it's that critical whether that embodiment happens in a physical manifestation where they have a robot situated in our world or it could have the same kind of uh, embodiment sitting inside of a game-like environment. Like, it's it's unclear to me that you couldn't still see uh, sort of that growth of intelligence out of something playing Minecraft, for example, which has a very rich world and lots to learn in it.
0: Right. What about marrying the thinking with the challenges of controlling a physical body? What was that like?
1: I mean, when in the early days uh, of robotics before, we've come a long way since then, but a a lot of it was um, a lot of work just to try to, process sensors and to make sense of them. Uh, I think as we've made a lot of progress in the last decades, uh, there's a lot more, I mean, machine learning, another topic I'm sure we'll talk more about, has changed a lot of this. That we It used to be we had to hard code all of our knowledge into these systems and try to put it into the programming so that it could understand that when it made a like a laser reading that was two meters away, that that means there's probably a wall there, and how would you represent that space? And we had to build all that knowledge in, and this is, this is much less uh, one of the compelling advances in the last couple of decades is that we don't have to do as much of that work anymore. We can build the algorithms that cause the systems to learn, and the the learning can extract that kind of knowledge, and we don't need to build it in, which is great given how much time I spent late nights programming robots and debugging them.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Well, we're going to get into poker, but I think before we go there, this might be a good time to get some basic uh, terms defined. So you've already brought up game theory, so we'll start there. Um, I know this is an important concept in your work and in AI. Can you give us some historical context and just explain what is game theory and why is it important to AI?
1: Sure. I I think the the way to think about game theory is to think about it as um, to try to get a mathematical model of how we, we'll say as intelligent people, uh, make decisions. Of course, we could always substitute the we in with, say, a computer system that wants to make intelligent decisions. And in particular, how do they make them when there are other agents all also simultaneously making intelligent decisions? And we wanted to, uh, in the 40s, there was, or it started really in the 20s, there was a big push to. To try to find the mathematics of this, like how how does one go about thinking about what the right decision is, uh, and so sort of there's sort of layers of this of thinking about well if you believe this about the world and these are the consequences of your actions, then how would I maximize sort of my my outcome that I desire, and so uh, game theory is all about trying to maximize. Uh, how much, uh, you know, sort of utility is often the usual phrase in the theory goes, but how much reward or how much goodness you would get out of particular outcomes. And so making decisions to sort of maximize that, knowing that the other agents of the world are all doing the same thing. They're trying to maximize their outcomes. And so once we sort of have that basis, then the question is, well, what can we solve using that? Can we actually find what rational intelligent behavior looks like? And in many cases, we can define that and then actually build algorithms to solve it. You asked about the history, and it's interesting because some of the early proponents of computer science really came out of game theory. And one particular person I'm thinking of is uh, von Neumann. He was the inventor of game theory as we we think about it now uh, and wrote the first book on it, but was also then instrumental uh, in developing computer science. And it almost feels like as he developed this mathematics, he now needed better computation than what you could do by hand to solve it. And then thus computers come along to say, this is my answer. These problems are really thorny and they're hard to deal with. If we could get computers to work through these equations, we could get much better answers to these kinds of problems. And so all of that early computer science work is dominated by a lot of people who are thinking these machines can think, and we need to get them to do that. Uh, And then it seems like through, I don't want to say that this was lost, but obviously as we go through the 60s and 70s, we realize these machines can do all kinds of other things too. They can... You know, they can be word processors and spreadsheets and they can, you know, be communication systems that lets us talk to each other. Uh, and so so almost the AI story was forgotten a little bit as computers were found to be much more useful now for other areas. Uh, but I feel like that's all coming back together where, no, 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 wait, these computers can actually think. But that was what the original, the original inventors had in mind as well, too.
0: Yeah, that's a great summary of the history and a good segue also into the next question. I, I want you to um, help define this term machine learning because I think that's another important term in, in the context of, of this podcast and our conversation. And it's something that not everybody really understands. So in non-technical terms, I'm wondering if you can um, help define what is machine learning?
1: Sure. I think on one level, it feels very easy to define in non-technical terms. It, I mean, I have a machine, it has some particular behavior, and then after it gains some experience, its behavior is changed, hopefully for the better. Right? This is pretty much all we mean. I think it's a more interesting question to ask, well, how could that even happen? Often we think about our machines as being you know, static. They're, that's exactly what they are. They're machines. They, like, we often use that phrase to say if they're a machine, if we refer to a human as a machine, we mean they do the same thing over and over again without any change. Um, and so we don't usually think about them as being innovative. And so, so then you have to start getting into some technical detail to say how could a machine possibly change its behavior. And the, and the short answer is it looks like uh, you, you end up having some numbers that usually it always falls down to numbers that sort of guide the machine's behavior. And then over time, the machine has a method to adapt those numbers to change its behavior. And it does so by looking at that stream of experience coming in. What are the examples that it gets to see? I get to try this particular action, and I get to see the result. And then maybe I can adjust the number associated with that. So I can say, that worked out really well for me. Maybe I should do that again. Uh, Or that didn't go so well. Maybe I need to downweight that in some sense. And and that's kind of at the heart of it. There's, there's of course, a lot deeper mathematics and, and fancier algorithms to do this. But that's kind of what the, what's at the heart of machine learning.
0: Wonderful. Well, before we get into poker, are there any other general concepts that you think we should define just before we dive into things?
1: I think it's easier to dive into them. And then you can uh, tell me when we went too far and we can, I can explain something else.
0: Sounds great. So, in terms of moving on to poker, uh, the field of AI has had this long tradition when it comes to games. And in a prior episode of this podcast, we spoke with Jonathan Schaefer and we talked about his work in chess and checkers as proving grounds for AI research. Yet, poker is a major focus of your work, and that's a really t- different type of game. So, I'm wondering how you would describe the problem or the problems that you're trying to solve in poker, and how does that translate um, into AI and learning?
1: Sure. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the reason poker was an exciting problem uh, that that got a lot of attention and that w- that was exciting to see us make progress on it in the last 10 years was exactly because this was a different game than uh, had been looked at before. I mean, for a long time, chess was the game of artificial intelligence. It was the benchmark by which we were making progress. And when that uh, in the 90s, when we saw Kasparov defeated by Deep Blue, this was a, a big uh, change. And, and in fact, um, Jonathan Schaefer, uh, as you had on before, was uh, he had a graduate student, Dars Billings, who um, when when Jonathan was asking his students, like, what's next? If chess is done, what what, what could you do next? And Dars Billings walked in and said, we should do poker. And there's a very clear reason. And the clear reason is because in a game like chess and other games that were done uh, in, in the same time, of course, Jonathan got uh, has done a huge amount of work inside of checkers, for example. Um, But even more recently in Go, all three of these games exhibit the fact that all the information you need to make your decision is right there in front of you, visible on the board. Uh, And so we often call that a perfect information game. So this is a game where we have all of the information to make our decision, uh, and that is distinguished from an imperfect information game where you essentially don't have all the information. The, The basic difference is you don't have all the information to make your decision. So in poker, that key piece of information you're missing is, well, the other player's cards. Uh, And if I knew the other players' cards, if we played this game face-up, then this would be a joke of a game. No one would play this for more than once because, you know, my cards are better than yours, so I would simply bet and and then you would fold because you can see that my cards are better than yours and that's the end of the game. Uh, And so the key insight, the key interesting aspect of poker is is I don't have all that information. And what makes it then more exciting is to think about, well, actually that's just the default setting. We're in as humans all the time for almost every decision that we make is that uh, you know we don't have the information we need, someone else acting in the world maybe does have that information, their interests might not be aligned with mine, so they might not want to tell me that information, uh, yet I still need to sort of navigate that space uh, and make good decisions myself. And so trying to figure out what are the principles by which, because the same principles uh, are not going to apply. Uh, if we go and take the algorithms, especially of the 2000s when we first started working on poker, they largely didn't get us very far. So this meant that very early on it was clear that not only does our previous technology not work here, this is also a big limitation of our previous technology and we're going to need to make progress here to make progress in the big AI picture.
0: Yeah. And I was really wondering about that because you, you brought up this idea that this is a very different type of game. There's a lot of uncertainty. We don't really know what the other player has in terms of their cards. And, um, and that's obviously a huge barrier. And there were limitations when you started working on this problem. You mentioned some of the challenges with hardware, with processing power, maybe even with the models themselves. Can you share a bit more about what some of those barriers were that you were facing?
1: Yeah, I think early on it was just simply not having the algorithms. Uh, so algorithms are these the sort of what do we program our computer to do? What's the instruction recipe they're going to follow? The the standard recipe in the uh, you know early 2000s when I started thinking about this problem, uh, and it became a focal point of the AI community, was a recipe we mostly had was search. So search is this idea that. You're in a particular, I'll I'll speak of it in chess, I have a particular board position, I see all the pieces on the board, and you can kind of do what sort of, you know, you might do as a beginner chess player. Like, I could think about what if I move this knight here, and you sort of like, you might even pick it up and move it there, and sort of put your finger on it, sort of hold it there and think, well, what is the opponent gonna do after that? And then, well, if the opponent did that, then what could I do after that? So you sort of think through, well, I could do this, and they could do this, and then I could do this, and you try to plan through for a move where the opponent doesn't really have any good ways to respond. Uh, And so that's the notion of search. Um, that's one of the big hammers we had, a big tool that we had to work on these problems. And it's unclear how you would apply that in poker. Uh, you could say, well, what if I bet here? What could my opponent do? But I don't really know what state my opponent is in, right? I don't really know what cards they're holding. So to think about how they might respond is very hard to do because, well, if they have just better cards than me, they're just going to call that bet. But I don't know if they do. So it's very hard to imagine how search works. uh, And yet that was our most powerful tool at the time.
0: Right. So what's actually going on as the AI is thinking about its cards? Like if it has pocket aces, is it super happy about that and it wants to play that hand? Or what is actually happening?
1: I think that's a great question. And it's also interesting because even in the, the last 10 years, the answer to that question has actually changed, I would say, uh, as to what the computer is doing. Um, so early on uh, in sort of our initial poker success, so this is uh, 2006 to 2010, The way our agents worked was they would do learning on this problem. So so what we had developed was search was not going to be a key piece of this. We needed to fall back on something else. And so what we did was we had our agents just play the game, millions and millions of hands of the game against itself over and over and over again. Constantly, as I mentioned before with the idea of machine learning, updating these weights, updating these little numbers that tell it, is it what happens if I bet when I have good cards? Is that a good thing to do? Um, now, it doesn't really know it has good cards. What I mean by that is just what happens if I bet if I'm holding pocket aces? And it might find out, oh, like I make more money when I bet when I hold pocket aces and I don't make as much money when I bet and I have weak, you know, poor cards. I have a two and a five. And then as it keeps learning, it starts to realize, well, sh- you know, if the other person bets, should I call if, you know, I have mediocre cards? And it first says, well, now I shouldn't because they, they only bet with good cards. Um, but then they start to reason, wait a minute, if they're going to fold when I bet, well, then I can start betting with bad cards and I'll get them to fold anyway. And now I start winning money when I'm betting with bad cards. And then the then itself, when it's in this sort of self-play mode, it actually starts to realize, but oh, hang on a minute, now it's betting with bad cards. So now when I have mediocre cards, I need to call. So it, it's a sort of like arms race back and forth. It's, it's adapting to itself. And it eventually starts to converge, and this is, we have proofs of this, and this is where the mathematics comes in. We can mathematically come in and prove this will happen, but it actually starts to converge to optimal poker strategies. So we do that in the background. So during all this time, we would get, you know, massive computers to just churn away for weeks and weeks, playing millions and billions. I mean, at one point, for one of our results, we estimated we played more hands of poker than all of humanity combined had ever played. Uh, So we're not the most efficient learners. These algorithms don't learn as fast as humans do. Uh, but then we would take that strategy. When it was done, it, it, was a, it was a fixed strategy. And then when it played and you asked, it was dealt pocket aces, was it, was it happy? The answer is clearly no. All it would do is say, okay, I'm dealt pocket aces. My strategy, which is this big table, tells me I'm supposed to bet 75% of the time. So then it would you know, flip some biased coin, it comes up, heads say, and then it bets. And uh, never really thinks about what it's doing at all. It's just following the rules. It would almost be like uh, you know, just someone gave you a table and you just walked in not even knowing how the game works and you could just play it and play it really well.
0: Wow. And I actually don't know how the game works. So that actually <laughs> might be good for me. Um.
1: Other than the table is too far, far too large to memorize. <laughs> it would be as easy. Like you you would just be following what those rules are. Wow. But that's actually not what's happening in our agents right now. Okay. Uh, the agents right now, oddly enough, are doing search again. And this is one of the coolest results in the last few years is that we've actually figured out how to go marry all of that learning that's happened in the background with Search. Now, it's still true that I don't think our agents, well, OK. We should never suggest that our agents are particularly happy or not. Uh, I mean, you know, After all, they're mostly still just programs. But it's, it's unclear that they're even looking in that sense. Currently, what they do is a little bit different. So when they're, uh, when they're dealt a particular set of cards, they kind of ignore them a little bit. And they actually sort of plan out how they would play with all possible cards that could be dealt. And they're actually going to do a Search. They're actually going to look through, what if I bet when uh, with my good cards uh, a lot and a little bit with my bad cards, but I do not bet with my medium cards. And I'll sort of explore, search through that space of how it could play all possible hands it could hold. Uh, and then once it finally figures out which of those things it thinks is the best thing to do, it'll finally sort of say, let me look at my cards and actually follow my strategy with respect to that. So I think it's still not happy uh, necessarily when it, it's dealt good cards, but now I think it actually is at least aware of it.
0: Right. That's super interesting. I want to know a bit more about the people who are who are making this happen, and and in the context of one of the first big wins in two thousand and eight. So you were preparing for this world championship in heads up limit poker at the time. Tell me a bit more about the team that was getting the AI game ready for this competition.
1: Yeah, we've um, so the computer poker research group uh, was actually started by Jonathan Schaefer uh, in in the late '90s with this shift to what's next after uh, after chess. With the answer being poker, slowly started to assemble uh, a few different professors who were excited by this uh, problem and uh, started to build up a team of graduate students. I joined in 2003 and sort of took over the group more formally in 2005, just as Jonathan moved into, had some more administrative responsibilities to, that was taking his time. The group has always been, uh, had incredible, uh, incredibly strong programmers because, as I said, we were often using a large amount of computation. So figuring out how to use that efficiently has been very important. And So there's been a mix of PhD students and master's students, but some of the best programmers I've ever gotten to work with have always been on this team.
0: And how did you celebrate?
1: <laughs> yeah, so, so what happened? Uh, so 2008 uh, In 2007, we actually did a man-machine competition, uh, and uh, we narrowly lost. Uh, we won uh, one of the matches, lost two of them, and it was a draw for the fourth one. Uh, so humans eked out a win. We went back and did some analysis on it, and as is traditional in all poker games, the losing side uh, likes to point out that, that the luck was not with them. Uh, we were a little bit more scientific with that and started to show that I think the luck was very much not with us, but it was close. It was definitely like, I think we were right on par. And then the next year as a big push to, what are the pieces that were missing? And it, it was clear uh, twofold uh, pieces that were missing. One was uh, the, the program was a little too static in how it played. It was too easy for it to change. And so what we had to do when we were playing in 2007 is we would tell it to sort of switch gears a little bit, like not while it was playing, but between matches to try to mix things up. And that felt, it didn't feel right either. It didn't feel like that was the right way it should, the program should know to do that. And so we started building in that kind of system into it. But then in addition, we also had more, continued to have more breakthroughs in in, in how large of a, a reasoning process that we could have the computer deal with. And so we organized a competition where this time, the first time we had them play on our home turf we were at a, an ai conference and the second time we went to vegas to play on their home turf yeah and it was it was great fun we were actually at one of uh, a, one of the poker sort of conventions right alongside the world series uh, and so lots of different poker players came by to watch um, but this time we convincingly won and uh, almost all of the matches there's only two matches i think that we we actually had a draw on so it was pretty exciting you asked what was sort of what happened afterwards i think uh, as You know, Vegas is known, sure, they're known for gambling, but they're also known for really good food. So what we actually did was we went to a really nice nice restaurant to celebrate (laughs) as a
0: team. That sounds fantastic. I thought you might tell me that's going to stay in Vegas. I didn't <laughs> tell you that. Well, I want to talk about the other big win, which happened in 2017. And this was Deep Stack, so a different program. And you had a, a huge win there, um, in this time in No Limit, Texas Hold'em Poker. So can you tell us how, uh, how things evolved from 2008 to 2017?
1: Yeah, so 2008, uh, the limit game of poker is sort of the small, well, especially heads-up limit. So heads-up just means there's just two people playing, uh, and and the limit game means that when you make a bet, you don't get to choose how big of a bet size you make. You only just say, I'm going to bet, and the bet size is fixed by the rules of the game. Uh, And so that makes the game much smaller. There's much less to sort of think about and reason about uh, as opposed to someone being able to make a bet of, you know, does it matter if they made a bet of 100 chips or 101 chips? Should I make a bet of 100 chips or 101 chips? Uh, So the complexity of the No Limit game is much, much larger. And so uh, in 2008 was the first time sort of computers had crossed over and beaten humans at the limit game. But yeah, it took another uh, almost 10 years before we could say that for No Limit. And um, what changed? A lot changed. So I had mentioned this idea of search, and that was probably the centerpiece. What we were doing before when I said we were just playing lots and lots of hands together, we still had to write down that strategy and that big table. And to write it down, we had to do something that we've come to call abstraction. We had to we had to take situations and abstract away the detail of them. So now you might sort of view it as, instead of thinking about, do I have aces separate from the situation, do I have an ace and a king, or do I have kings, we might just group those together saying, you have a good hand, so figure out how to play when you have a good hand. And that was how we coped with the problem when it was the limit game. That just fails pretty miserably on the no limit game. The game is just way too big to imagine that you would compress it down into a smaller one. Uh, And search allows us to not have to do that anymore. So search allows us to view each circumstance from its own situation. So instead of having to write down the answer for every situation, when we find ourselves in one that we probably haven't been in before because every situation is that, uh, we would just begin to do a search from that situation. Uh, we still had our learning component. The learning was used so that we didn't have to search all the way to the end. We only had to search a little bit ahead. And then we could uh, have already stored or learned how good it is to be in that situation where the game's not quite over yet. And and then we could use search plus learning plus doing this strong game theoretic uh, reasoning where we could prove that this is going to give us the right answer. All of those three pieces come together in what DeepStack was.
0: Wow. And I'm, I'm curious again uh, about the people, the people involved in in training the AI. And you painted a great picture of of playing lots and lots of different hands and also of the search component that's going on. But can you talk a bit more specifically about the team of people? How many people, for example, were on this team? What were you doing as the AI was competing? What did that look like?
1: Yeah, so uh, in the DeepStack uh, result, we had uh, about 10 people were part of the team team. There was two postdocs and about six PhD students and a few master's students. It was, uh, so what had happened, part of it is is realizing that we're close to being able to do this and then setting out to actually achieve it. Like once you realize you're close and you think this will actually work, then there's a lot of infrastructure that has to be built behind the scenes. How do we actually have a mechanism to play. So what we wanted to do was also make sure that it wasn't just the result wasn't just someone got lucky and they won. Right, poker obviously is a game where there's a large luck component involved. And so we want to we want to try to take that out. We're scientists after. All we want to take that as much as we can. And so part of that means that we need to play a lot of hands to remove that, but part of that means we need to use extra tools to analyze what the outcome was to see if we can pull out the variants that come from just being lucky. And so we have a lot of tools that do that as well. Uh, and so, some of the team was working on that. Some of the team was working on uh, how do we build the interface that's going to let humans play. Some of the team was working on how do we how do we actually build better uh, systems for measuring who made who took the better action, so that we could come back in the end and say, no, 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 we're quite certain, and we can prove it of why we were, uh, and just how much of an advantage we had over the human players. Uh, and then, then there was, you know this involves humans, so there's human subject studies. And so we had to go through ethics approval to make sure we're doing this on the up and up. So uh, even once we had the AI piece relatively ready to go, there's still a lot of background work to be able to pull all of this off.
0: Yeah, I think it's so interesting to think about the various people and their roles. Um, I think it's tempting to think, oh, it just all happens. The AI magically does everything, but it sounds like that's not the case. There are a lot of people doing Yeah, and
1: even the development along the way I think is interesting because of of how collaborative uh, it really is and how I think people don't quite get an idea. I mean, I I think I would imagine this of, of a field, I don't know, of researchers sort of sitting in some cave somewhere, like independently developing stuff, but like that's never how these things go. There's, there's like every week we had a meeting where it was someone's presenting new results up on the screen. Where here's some new graph, here's some new idea, here's how much improvement it has or how much far behind it is, and then everyone around the table uh, suggesting, well maybe it means this or what if we change this, or uh, you know like maybe the problem is here. Or, I think there still might be a bug and maybe we just have, maybe we just need to find that bug. Uh, and so like it it is the exact opposite of any one person sort of doing this. It's it's really much like a constant back and forth of discussing where we're at now and what do those results mean and what can we do to make them better.
0: Yeah. Well, before we move on from the game of poker, something that you shared with me in your um, guest questionnaire is you said that AI won't move on from games and play. It will instead build on games and play. Can you tell me more about that comment and what specifically you mean by that? Yeah,
1: I, I think this is this is slightly in response to a sense which... Um, you know, For decades, uh, games have been this proving ground for AI. It's been uh, a place that we can hone our algorithms, understand them much more clearly, and, and see their advances sort of in an objective way where we can say, okay, before we weren't able to beat this quality of player. And now we're at a master level. Now we're at a grandmaster level. And so it's really helpful for us to drive our research forward. There's a sense in which um, I think that some people are saying, okay, well now we've conquered games. Like most of them are. There's maybe a few games left that you could do, but we've conquered them. So now the next step is we're going to go solve real-world problems. And I'm not that I'm, a, I'm not saying that we won't go on and, and you know have those kinds of impacts because I think we are and will have them. I think it's more of thinking about how AI is going to develop. I think that play is more fundamental to our own intelligence than that gives it credit for. I don't think that, yes, I think games have served as a playground for us as researchers. but there's also a sense in which games are going to be a playground and a proving ground for the AI themselves. Much like games like that exist for us. Like we don't, you know, we have our children play games not because we want them out of our hair, although maybe that's you know some sense that sometimes that's what it is. But we really like children play games because that, that they need this. They need to walk through making decisions, trying out ideas, sort of formulating plans and seeing what happens in a very low, um, a low risk environment where the implication of failure is just, oh, I lost the game, so what? I'm gonna move on. Um, I think that's gonna be a central piece to our AI systems that they're gonna need that sort of playground where they can try things out and understand how their actions have effect on the world and start beginning to build up that planning process. I think there's another fact, which is that even, even as we get older, you know, some of us continue to play games, uh, like myself, but some some people slowly stop, but I think they don't stop playing. I think there's the nature of that play starts to change. I think we're always playing. I think playing is a part of like, you know, staying physi- uh, intellectually acute and focused and being able to continue to see how the world changes and works. And I think we're going to need our agents to do that too. So I think it's not really like a stage of research. I think it's a mindset. I just see that being a part of our agents going forward, even if, we're not uh, you know, advancing new milestones of claiming. Here's a new game that we've solved.
0: I love that description, and I love how you've basically opened up this idea of you know, what does the value play for the AI itself in its own learning? I think that's a really interesting question. We're gonna move on just to a slightly different topic and you've already raised it and, and that's the topic of ethics. And one of the ways that I think um, AI research using games differs from other research is that you're generating your own data. So you're talking about millions and millions of hands of poker, for example. So you don't really run into some of the ethical challenges that other AI researchers face when it comes to privacy and consent and collection of data or use of bias data. But I'd love to just get your thoughts on some of these ethical considerations. Can you share your perspective?
1: Sure. I think they're they're really important. Uh, I think it is true that as we're at the stage where AI is becoming a fairly commonly deployed tool, I think we have to be really careful about how what the what the ramifications of that tool is, and it's a different kind of tool than we've seen before. I think we, uh, society, have often, as we built new tools, abdicated our responsibility for what effects they have. And I think this is, well, I think we've come a long way. I don't think we have to do that every time. Maybe we could learn from our past mistakes. Um, and this is a tool that does have very subtle, uh, very subtle, sometimes very blatant, but sometimes subtle effects on on what, on what the results are going to be. I also think that, I think you're right that the sort of reinforcement learning or game playing perspective, that we're gathering our own data means that, yeah, we don't quite have to think about bias data or or privacy violations and that sort. But I do think there are other, there's still unintended consequences. And I think that's a, a big part of the research that we do um, still. And we have to think about, you know, where does the reward function come from? Where does the utility function? Where does this thing that the agents are striving to achieve, their goals, who gets to set that? Um, and that's no... That's no less problematic than, you know, what was the source of the data and the labeling? Who gave us the labeling and whether that could be biased? I could very easily have reward functions that are biased and have, you know, unintended consequences on particular people groups, for example. Uh, and, and who is getting to set that, I think, is, is still important. And I think researchers, well, I don't think it's our responsibility to get that right, as if it's, it's, it's like we're the only ones who have to think about this. I think it's great seeing that. I think this is a big question for society, for politicians, for economists, for, for ethicists. Like, I think it's, it's, it's an important question that it needs to involve everybody. But I do think that the researchers understand the technology the most. Uh, and so they're still going to have to play a role in sort of identifying where these likely things might fall down and what are possible solutions that might be able to, to recover how we can go forward.
0: Right. Well, sticking with this whole philosophical vein just a little bit more, you recently did a talk called Can a Game Demonstrate Theory of Mind?, which is some newer work that you're doing. And I'd love to know more about that. But first I'll I'll just help set things up a little bit and give a bit of a definition of theory of mind straight from Wikipedia. So theory of mind is this ability to attribute mental states such as beliefs, intents, desires, emotions, and knowledge among others to oneself and to others, so that's the official Wikipedia definition. So, given that context, I'd love to know more about this question that you raised. Can a game demonstrate theory of mind? Can you explain um, what you found out in doing that work?
1: Yes, but I'm going to take a diversion for a second. Let me say, sort of, where this started from. It almost started from this, I think. Uh, so, so I had done, uh, you know, quite a bit of work on poker. We've talked about that. Uh, as another project going alongside of that, I was uh, developing something called the Arcade Learning Environment, which sort of established using the old 1970s and 80s Atari 2600 games as a platform for doing research. And so it was a little bit that I I was coming to be known as a person who uh, was selecting problems for the community that could drive us forward quickly. And so I seemed to be either lucky or good, I don't know which one, at at finding the problems which were we could make really like they weren't so advanced that we didn't know where to begin. But they, were, uh, but they were a big enough jump that we could make really fast progress on it. And I was getting asked very, very often, uh, you know, what's the next one? What's the next game? Um, was usually how I was asked, what's the next game? And, and of course, as a game player, I was also playing lots of games. I didn't, for the longest time, I didn't have an answer for what that question was. I was like, I don't really know. Uh, until I played the game Hanabi, and, and that's really the context. So, so, so this sounds very bizarre as a, as a, as a diversion here. But that is the answer to the question that you asked about Theory of Mind. So the game Hanabi, I have to tell you a little bit about this game, or none of this is going to make any sense. Okay. So the so the game Hanabi is a cooperative game. So everyone's going to be playing on the same team. But a little bit like poker, it's a game where you don't have all the information you're going to need. And the way they set this up is uh, you or everyone at the table is dealt a hand of cards, but you're going to hold the hand of cards so it's facing outwards, so that everybody else around the table can see your cards, but you can't. And you can see everybody else's at the table's cards, but your own. The rest of the game is relatively straightforward. You together as a team have to play cards in the center of the table to count to one to five. It's very simple. You're just going to count one to five in five different colors. Uh, And so the game in some sense, again, is as easy as you possibly can imagine, except for you're the one playing your cards and you can't see them. And now there's a particular set of rules to say how you're allowed to tell people about, you're not just allowed to tell people what's in their hands, but there are particular rules about when you're allowed to tell people. You can tell them things like, that card you're holding is a red card, and that tells them some information. But the fascinating thing about this game is that not just that when I tell you it's a red card, not do you now know, hey, look, I know this is now a red card, but you can start ask yourself, why did Mike right now tell me that's a red card? Why did you choose this moment to tell me it's a red card? He probably had something in mind. He wants me to do something because I know that it's a red card. So the very fact that you know that I'm trying, I have the intent to win this game, means that you can start to infer more from my act of communicating than what's in the content of my communication. And when I first was playing this game, this blew my mind, right? Like not, But, but it blew my mind in the sense that this game crystallized what we do every day, all the time. And in the sort of psychology literature, this goes under the name theory of mind, as you gave the definition for. We very are very easily can attribute to other people this idea that they have their own perspective on the world. They have their own beliefs. They have their own intentions. And I can start to reason about that. So like one classical example of this is just in conversation, uh, you know, maybe you were to ask me, uh, you know, would you like to join me for dinner? And I might say, you know, I've already eaten, uh, like I ate earlier. I didn't actually tell you I don't want to join you for dinner. I, in fact, didn't answer your question at all. But from that answer, you can infer a lot. Like, I gave you the reason what my answer is, and so you can figure out what my answer is. So I didn't actually need to say that. Now, why do we do that? Like, Why, as humans, do we do that? I think there's all kinds of weird social uh, implications of what's going on. In some cases, I think it's because it's very efficient. That very often, we can communicate a, a great deal by letting the the background information and the inference communicate all the information. And to see that in a game was, a, was what really blew my mind. And so then that became, well, could a computer do this? And it was very clear in my head, nope, can't. Just like, full stop, we do not have any computer algorithms that can do that. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so this question uh, this question that I gave a talk on with the title, Can a Game Demonstrate Theory of Mind? Is Could we have a game where if a computer could do it, that would start to say, yeah, we have advanced our AI systems enough where they're starting to do this kind of reasoning, and could a game help us get there? And I, I think I think we've even started to see some progress. So that, that talk is like there's a paper out that's only a couple years old now, but there's actually a swath of papers that have been published, not even uh, a little bit by me, but off, often by other people as well, too, that we're actually starting to make progress, which is really exciting to me, because that was, problem was exactly picked because we don't know how to do this at all.
0: Wow, there's a lot to uh, to absorb there, and a couple of things that really strike me. Um, one is uh, this idea that this almost feels like the anti-poker game. So it's kind of the opposite of poker in some respects, in that you're the one who doesn't see your cards, and we're all trying to collaborate. We're not trying to bluff each other and, and win. We're trying to collaborate in order to win the game. So there's that piece. And then this idea of efficiency, as you were kind of describing the AI inferring and learning from. Uh, the statement about dinner and why why we sh- aren't going to get together because you've already eaten i kind of think about our own learning when it comes to new uh, contexts for example in text and the use of emojis and how and someone might shoot you back an emoji and now you're all of a sudden trying to figure out what does that you know beer right. emoji mean <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> yeah I mean I think humans will take this so far that we can confuse ourselves but I think it's surprising if you walk around on an everyday basis and think about when someone communicates to you what's the literal meaning of what they said? And then what is it that they that communicated to me? Those two things are different. And uh, I think it's interesting, like you gave an example where sometimes we take it too far, and then we, we fail to communicate literally and and the intentional uh, information. But um, the, the amount of intentional, I think, is surprising. I think humans don't realize, uh, we don't realize how much we do this unless we're really looking for it.
0: Right. Well, the word that comes to mind is culture. And I'm wondering um, what you think the role of culture is as it relates to games. And can games teach us about culture or what a culture values? Are there lessons there for humans as well as for AI?
1: I think lots of things tell us about culture. I mean, culture being the sort of like sum of all things (laughs) that society deals with, it would be silly to say that it couldn't. Um, I think it's also interesting that I think games often uh, transcend uh, culture. I think you know, like so often we'll look at something like um, you know, the sport of soccer and think about how it brings the world together. and we call this the World Cup. I think I think games can do that too, because I think they are also, um, I think they they tap into something more more deeply human thing that transcends culture. And I think that's that's one of the attractive things to me. And I think it comes from we're intelligent beings. This is why I think I think our agents, our AI agents, are going to play too. Uh, it's going to be I think maybe a point that we can understand them really well because together we both play, and this will transcend the culture that we might also have in terms of being embodied as a physical world versus be a, being a machine intelligence.
0: Yeah, even the game of Hanabi is that a Western culture game or is that an Eastern culture game?
1: Yeah. Uh, It is actually a Western culture game. Uh, Its name means fireworks in Japan, but its designer is French. Uh, (laughs) So um, he he made a series of two games for which uh, the second one is mostly forgotten, but he was shipped together as a pack called Ikebana and Hanabi. And Ikebana was about flower arranging. And I don't even think, I mean, many times when people design games, I don't know that they always know. Uh, what they designed and why it's special. And then the community sometimes latches onto that. But this is definitely a case where I think the community found some uh, some some deeply uh, interesting uh, thoughts in this game that I'm not even sure Antoine Baza, the designer, realized when he made it.
0: It's interesting. It's almost an intercultural game. I, I picked up on the name and thought, oh, I wonder if that's an Eastern culture. And so it's more about collaboration versus maybe something <laughs> like poker that's more like, yes, right. I'm going to win this as an individual.
1: I mean, one of the attractions to Hanabi from an AI point of view for me was, yeah, like we have a long history because, because it works at a proving ground level of building competitive AI systems. And we keep thinking about our AI systems as beating humans. And one of the attraction point, attractive points to me about Hanabi is that if we do this really well, we would have an AI system that's able to collaborate with humans. And wouldn't that be a nicer story to sometimes tell, since that's our goal anyway?
0: That is a nice story and a perfect segue into this next question, um, because you know there's still a lot of fear out there about AI. Um, Yet in your work, um, when you talk about AI, it sounds very playful. It sounds very fun. Um, But we also have these societal concerns when it comes to the technology. And I'm just wondering, how can people feel more comfortable and less afraid of AI? Are there practical things that you can share um, or things that we should know that would just help us address these more fearful scenarios that we have?
1: I mean that's that's tricky in the sense that yeah a lot of those fearful scenarios come out of you know Hollywood movies of of trying to paint a picture for, for what uh, the world might look like. I do think that there are there's an alternative picture for how we might think a, a you know a, a developing intelligence we might interact with it and perceive it, and that's the you know we we have developing we have billions of in- developing intelligences in the world right now. You know, and we don't think too much of it. Every time a baby is born, we don't think that this is a moment where a catastrophe will hit. And I think it's because we, when we see them developing, I think it takes away a lot of the, the fear. We we know that there's, you know, yes, they you know humans can do bad things in the world too, and they, there's a lot of history of that. Um, but we can also see that we also know that it's gonna. They're developing, right? Like that, we they're gonna play and they're gonna learn and they're gonna be. Uh, Parented, and I don't don't see any reason why that that won't be how AI systems eventually have to get there. I don't think I think we see the Hollywood version is some cold calculating, just suddenly flip the switch on, uh, and there's this machine out to do us harm. I don't think intelligence arrives that way. Uh, Now we don't have we don't have good we don't have any example of it not arriving in the sense of uh, something that's helpless that is just trying to understand its world playing to discover things and, and sort of growing into and thus it's both it's both uh, ethical considerations and its capabilities are all developed at the same time. Uh, I think that's the only one we know of and I think that's what it's going to look like. And so when I when I have that picture, I think once you see an AI system playing, I think it takes away that other picture that we have that's presented to us through Hollywood.
0: Yeah, I like that holistic approach. My last question for you, what is the one thing that you're most excited about in the field of AI, something that you think is going to be a big game changer, total pun intended?
1: Of course, I think the things I'm working on are, are the, the most important game changers in AI, uh, as would any researcher out there uh, would give that story, because otherwise they would switch to what they're working on. But at the same time, I'm also very cognizant that you know research happens in, in very small steps. Uh, you know, even when we talked about some of these very particular results that were sort of these groundbreaking moments, but but that that forgets that there was millions and millions, maybe not millions, but there's many, many little steps uh, in between, even between the 2008 result and the 2017 result, those nine years to say that like you know nothing happened and then in, in two years we suddenly solved the next problem. You know, absolutely not what happened. There was, there was, you know, two ton, two to three dozen papers just out of my group, dozens of papers coming out of other groups working on these problems that all slowly, incrementally advanced our understanding. Uh, which means that, like, I want to tell you about some of the things I'm working on now, but they all always, they always feel very small. So, so let me mention one of them. I had mentioned this uh, this idea that uh, that even in even in the the reinforcement learning setup where you're experiencing the world, that you don't have data not fed into you. But you get to take action and see what the effect is, and you're learning through through experience and play. Even in that space, like there are definitely unintended consequences that you could you could have a system which you know is trained in one setting and then is moved to another one uh, and makes poor choices because they just didn't get training of how the world works in that setting. I think my sort of my, my prototypical example is you know maybe we might have self-driving cars being trained in the Bay Area uh, and then one gets shipped up to Edmonton and you know and and fall comes and our first you know, we've, we've now seen snow, our first little bits of white stuff start falling. And you know, what happens? Like it's a pretty, of course, it's a joke in some sense because no one's going to, you know, that's going to be part of the training regime before we have these widely deployed. But obviously that system is going to, what's it going to do? And now what would we do? Like how do we cope with facing something we haven't seen before? Like we enter a construction zone and things look complicated and uncertain. Well, what we do is we slow down. Uh, Like, that's the first thing we do, and the reason we're doing that is because we don't understand, we know we don't understand, and we're going to take the action that minimizes the risk while we don't understand, and traveling slow means there's much less chance that we would cause injury and cause property loss if we just go slowly. Um, that's not in many cases. I won't say on the self-driving car case. I'm like there are people working on this that have a lot of this kind of thought process in mind. But in general, if you apply most of the the sort of typical AI algorithms, they don't have a good sense of that. If you put them in something that they're that they should be uncertain of, they don't. You know, they don't proceed cautiously. They proceed with certainty about wherever their model's wrong. They will just proceed as if it's right. And so I have a project in a very limited setting. Like it's a very very tiny step. Uh, about, could we do that? Could we have a system that would learn to be cautious, that would learn that when faced with uncertainty, not just that it, it knows it should be cautious, but also it knows how to be cautious. Because even being cautious requires you to learn to be that way. Like, what's the behavior that would minimize risk? Like, so when I say in a car, it's slowing down, but that's not obvious. You have to know that, you know, if the car is going slower, that you're much less, you have more control over it and you're less likely to have a bad outcome. Uh, And so how would we have systems that also learn how to be cautious in addition to when to be cautious? Uh, And I think that, why am I excited by this? I I think um, obviously it feels important, uh, but I think it'll see more deployed systems if we could trust them more. And I think that's an important piece of trust is being able to know that they're not going to go headlong in to an uncertain circumstance uh, and just say, okay, well, fine, well, I'm going to push on the gas because I haven't seen this before. Um, And I think as we have more deployed systems, we'll build more trust and more trust means that we can deploy more systems.
0: That is very profound on every level um, and a great place to end our conversation, which has been super fun. And I just wanna say thanks so much, Dr. Bolling, for being here and for sharing your personal stories and work about your research. Thanks for being on the podcast today.
1: These are great questions and I enjoyed uh, giving my perspective on them. Thanks a lot.
0: AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society, a signature research area at the University of Alberta and the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies. Find out more about AI for Society at AI Society.ca and the Cool Institute at kios.ualberta.ca. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Metis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Dr. Scott Smallwood and the Sound Studies Institute for providing recording space. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforSociety.ca. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com.